If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Continuing on tonight, we've taken a couple weeks off after we finished uh, talking about uh, the seven churches there in Revelation. And again, really, this, this whole book is written to the seven churches, but it's written, the application is for us as well. So really excited about um, this week and next week's lesson as we look at chapter 4 and 5. And as the title suggests in your notes, um, we're kind of entering the throne room of heaven. Uh, Jesus has been walking among uh, his churches for the past two chapters in chapter 2 and 3. And now we, get, we go from the earthly view back up to heaven. Um, and really up until this point, John has, this is really, chapter 4 starts the third transition or the third section within the book of Revelation, which is going to cover most of the rest of the, the book. So the first chapter is all about John writing what he has seen. Uh, chapter 2 and 3 is all about what is, what is happening now. And then chapter 4, really through 23 or 22, is about what will take place after this. So again, uh, from here forward, everything is given from perspective of what is going to take place after the rapture of the church. And we're going to talk about those things in just a few minutes. But I want to, I don't, I don't have this in your notes or anything tonight. I just want to briefly mention, I really believe there's, there's nine specific events <clears throat> that will take place that will kind of usher in the final days uh, on earth as well as for mankind. And uh, most of these events that take place within Revelation are talked about in other places. But uh, here's just a few of these. So uh, I believe really before, um, you know, chapter four and some of these things are going to happen, uh, first thing is going to happen is the rapture, and I can I can have this listed off for you next week. Uh, but the rapture of the church uh, didn't necessarily talk about it in Revelation, but in First Th- Thess- uh, First Thessalonians chapter four, uh, verses thirteen and eight through eighteen, it talks about uh, really Christians being caught up or snatched away, and I believe Jesus is going to uh, take away His church before all this, because really there's no mention after chapter three of the church within the tribulation. Now, there are a lot of different views, and I don't want to take too much time on this tonight. There are a lot of different views that some Christians, some ministry leaders, some preachers hold to. Uh, There is a uh, pre-tribulation view, there is a mid-tribulation view, and there is a post-tribulation view, just to name a few. Uh, Pre-trib, the view on that is that the church will be raptured and gone before the tribulation sets in. Uh, the mid-tribulation view, many, many believe that during the middle of the tribulation is when the church will be taken out. And then that, that post-tribulation view is that the church will be taken out after the tribulation. We're already living in tribulation. Uh, but from my perspective and what I hold to based on what I believe the Bible teaches, I believe the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational view that the church will be gone before the tribulation. Because if people think we're in the tribulation now, uh, it's, honestly, it's nothing compared to what Revelation 4, or really 6 through 19, talk about. So the first main event that's going to take place is the rapture. Uh, the second main event that's going to take place is the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, now, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there are two different judgments what is the second judgment? Anybody know what the second judgment is? There's the judgment seat of Christ, and there's Carmen? Yes, the great white throne. There is a difference and a distinctive difference between the two. The judgment seat of Christ is for who? Anybody? For us. For us. Who's us? Eagle Drive? 
Yes, it's for Christians. Yes, I know what she's saying. Uh, so the judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. The, judge, or the great white throne judgment is for all of the lost. And we need to understand that. And we'll probably go in depth at a later time talking about that. But the judgment seat is for true believers. And really, this is the time that we will receive those rewards, those crowns that we can lay back at the feet of Jesus. Uh, the third really event, and a lot of these are just kind of simultaneous, but the marriage of the Lamb, um, you know, this is the second event that will happen in heaven after the rapture. The marriage will unite Christ with his bride and us for all of eternity. Uh, then we have the tribulation, which is Revelation 6 through 19. Uh, the battle of Armageddon is kind of towards the end, uh, Revelation chapter 16. Uh, the second coming of Christ, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 19. Uh, the millennium, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ when he returns to earth to establish his messianic kingdom. Um, Satan will be loosed for a season during that time. And again, we'll get to that in Revelation 20. Uh, then we have the great white throne judgment, and that is for all of the non-believers, all of those who have ever been uh, or who have never trusted Jesus as their Savior. And really, the, the final event is all of eternity, and this happens after the great white throne judgment. So I just wanted to briefly mention those, and maybe next week I'll, I'll throw those nine events and even the scriptural references in your notes so you can have them. Uh, but we're transitioning into one of my favorite portions of Revelation because, again, we move from the earthly scene to the heavenly scene. And chapter 4 and 5, one of the keys of chapter 4 and 5 is worship. So let me ask this question before we really dig in tonight. What, in your mind, what does biblical worship look like? In your mind, what does biblical worship look like? We're going to kind of discuss a little bit of that tonight, but what in your mind does biblical worship look like? Anybody want to venture a guess? Baylor? You go with God. That's a really good guess. Julie? Sometimes you can tell when they actually mean it. Okay. What else? What do you think biblical worship looks like? Anybody? Anybody want to venture a guess? Tiffany? Someone has knowledge. Okay. Anybody else? Any adults? Any of the adults want to go? Some of you guys are scared. Like, I don't want to say anything that's going to be wrong. You got it? Oh, your dad. Oh. I'm with Julie. Okay. <laughs> Brother Mike, I know you want to say something. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot that I can talk about with worship. Um, but go ahead and write this down. I think it's the first thing I have in your notes there tonight. And then I'm going to come back around to the, the first point. But I've said this before in our church. Worship does not lead to an encounter with God. Worship is an encounter with God. And that's very important. Worship doesn't lead to an encounter with God. Worship is an encounter with God. Charles Spurgeon once stated, the, the, the noted preacher in the 1800s, he said, Beloved friends, we may well continue to praise God, for our God continues to give us causes for praise. This simple philosophy, though, is often missing in our churches, because a lot of people don't continually give praise to God for all things, for all that he has given us. True spiritual worship is perhaps one of the greatest needs 
in our individual lives and in our churches today. There is a constant emphasis today on witnessing for Christ and working for Christ, and that is important. We're talking about witnessing for Christ on Sunday mornings, but there's not a lot that is said about worship. You know, there are a lot of churches that do worship differently, aren't there? Uh, Drastically different. You know, some you may like, some you may not like. But in our worship, you know, it's very important to understand what worship is. Worship really means to ascribe worth. Um, before we get to Revelation, I want you to turn back to Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm uh, 95, Psalm chapter 95. I just want to read a couple of verses. And, and really, uh, we've been kind of looking at different Psalms with the school in our assemblies. And just there's so many that David and others wrote about worship and about uh, what it means to praise God. Uh, but follow along with me. Psalm 95, I'm just going to read a few verses here. Verse number one. The psalmist says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Again, this is talking about who God is and and all of the, the, the majesty, the glory, the honor that is due his name. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, really talking about his sovereignty, his control over all things, over all creation. And he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Look at verse number six. Oh, come, let us, what? Worship. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. And the sheep of his hand today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. But going back to verse number six, O come, let us worship. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Look, real genuine worship comes from the heart that is reverent towards God. You know, it's more than just, uh, and I'm not against this. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a good thing. It's more than just raising our hands in church. It's more than just saying amen. You know, worship comes from the heart, and it's not just an emotional thing that is stirred from music. You know, again, it's, it's not leading to an encounter with God. It is an encounter with God. And listen to me, the question is never if we worship, because everyone in here worships. The question is who or what you worship. Every single one of us describes worth to something. It might be a job, it might be a family member, it might be a number of things. But our worship, biblical worship, is describing worth to God, to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords. You know, worship is more than just coming to church. It's more than a prayer, it's more than a song. It is the act of entering into God's presence for the sole purpose of glorifying, exalting, and praising Him. And as we get to chapter 4 of Revelation tonight, John has a vision of going into the throne room of God and and helps us understand in these chapters, chapter 4 and 5, what true worship looks like as we see the 24 elders and the four beasts and and really the countless others in chapter 5 that are gathered around the throne of God describing His worth, describing His glory, describing Uh, his honor, and bowing down because it's not about them, but it's all about him. 
In John, he gives us a glimpse into glory and permits us to hear these worshiping creatures as they praise God. And there's a couple things we're going to hit on tonight. The first thing I want you to note is this. We should praise God because he is the king over all things. We should praise God because he is the king over all things. Follow along with me in your Bibles, if you would. Revelation chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start reading in the first five verses. Revelation 4, verse number 1. After this, so again, after everything that John has seen as he's talked about with the seven churches, and we spent seven weeks specifically on each of those churches. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So things which are going to happen later at, at, an, at another time in history. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, I just want to stop right here. I, I can't even imagine what this must have been like for John. You know, we can, we can only begin to imagine what he must have experienced, but to, to be whisked away into heaven and in this vision see people in really the countless thousands gathered around the throne of God, worshiping. It just It blows my mind when you think about it. Verse number three, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper. So a lot of times when John is describing things, he is using um, similes. So he's, he's trying to help us understand because again, he's, <laughs> the Bible says no one can look upon the face of God and live, but he's trying to help describe God, Jesus, the Christ, to us. And it's, it's difficult to describe all of his majesty, all of his glory, all of his beauty. So he brings it into metaphors and, and tries to help us understand. And he that sat upon was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow about the throne in the sight like an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, twenty-four seats, and upon them I saw four and twenty elders, twenty-four sitting around the throne, clothed in white raiment. And they, haunt, they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeding lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps, seven torches, burning with fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the first thing we see, I think it's ringing just a little bit, Mike. Uh, the first thing we see is that we must praise God because he is the king over all things. Now, the key word in this chapter is the word throne. The, th the word throne is used at least 14 times, and I think it appears more than 46 in the entire book of Revelation. You see, here's what we learn here. No matter what is happening on earth, who is in control? God. We must understand that. No matter what is taking place on this earth, God is in complete control. And really, what this is, this is the culmination. You get that, Justin? Culmination. All right. Very good. This is the culmination of all the throne scenes in the Bible as John describes God the Father seated at the center of the universe. He sits at the center of the universe, and everything in these two chapters revolves around God's throne because every facet of our life should revolve around Jesus Christ, should revolve around God. And here's what we have to understand. Again, no matter what is taking place, no matter what trouble we face, God is at the center of it all. He is in control of everything. He sits at the center of the throne room of heaven. And what we see, first of all, under this is that God's plan demands our praise. 
God's plan demands our praise. Verse number one, this door, this Torah, is opened into heaven through which John is lifted up beyond this present world and he sees the throne resplendent in glory and he sees the one that sits upon him. Corey Tinboom once said, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. There are a lot of times though that we see the problems, right? And we can't see the plans of God. But what we see first and foremost is that God's plan demands our praise. And his plan is to show us that he is in control, that he is in charge of everything. Verses two and three, the next thing we see under this is this, the person of God demands our praise. Not only does the plan of God demand our praise, but the person of God demands our praise. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. The key phrase here is in the spirit. The command to do anything in the spirit is a command to enter into the spiritual perspective. So what John was doing here, he was entering into a spiritual perspective. And he's seeing again, God sitting at the throne. And, and we're going to be introduced more specifically to uh, Jesus, the Christ uh, in later chapters here. But here he is, he sits at the center of the universe and he dwells in unapproachable light. Verse number three, we're given a description of God. As it says, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow about the throne in sight like an emerald. Together, these stones form a picture of brilliant colors and light. Let me paraphrase something that first, I think I got it. First Timothy 6, 16 says, God is the blessed and the only sovereign who alone has immortality, who dwells in the unapproachable light whom no one has ever or can ever see. You see, in our sinful fallen state, listen, no human can gaze upon God in his undiminishable glory and majesty and live. No one. So what this is, John is giving us symbols. These symbolic pictures are representative of the glory of God. And when we see God portrayed with the appearance of Jasper and the sardine or the carnelian stone, these are pictures intended to provoke meaning in our minds to help us understand. If you've ever seen some of these precious stones, you, you see the, the color, the majesty, the brilliance, right? How many have ever seen some precious stones? And, and you understand what I'm talking about. You, you understand the, the magnificence, the brilliance that, that happens when you see a, a stone that is pure. And really these stones are referring to God's or Jesus's value, his elegance. The rainbow is a reminder and reinforcement of the covenant to Noah of his faithfulness, as it says at the end of verse number three, and the rainbow about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. You put all these together and you have a vision of God's majesty, his splendor, his glory, and his faithfulness. And really a lot of this is in reference to the Old Testament. We have to understand that the Bible is, uh, is a great comparative of itself. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is God's word. So really what John is doing is he's referencing back to Ezekiel chapter 28, as well as Exodus chapter 28, where we see a jasper, this opaque jewel, often red, but other times green or even brown or blue or yellow or white. Uh, we see this carnelian, this fiery red stone that was very popular in the ancient world. Again, speaking of his majesty, his splendor, his glory, his faithfulness. The next thing we see, moving on, verse number four, and round about the throne were four and 20 seats, 
And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. The next thing we see is the privileges of God demand our praise. Again, the rainbow that we just mentioned briefly, and I'm, I'm trying not to just, you know, just stay in some of these verses because there's so much that I want to cover, not just tonight, but in the future. And I don't want to get hung up on things that we don't need to get hung up on. But the rainbow that we see around the throne uh, vertically, while these heavenly beings were there around the throne horizontally, they are, as it were, the king's court. Who are these 24 elders? There's a lot of debate as to who these are. Some believe that they might reference angels. I don't believe that they are angelic beings, partly because of the crowns that they received. Uh, it kind of references back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, where it talks about the Stephanos, or the victor's crown. And really, I believe that that victor's crown is not intended for an angelic being. It is in, intended for the redeemed. So some, some believe, and again, this is speculation, but uh, there are many that believe that these 24 elders could very well be uh, of the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the 12 apostles. Um, I think it's a good interpretation. Again, we don't know for sure, but I, I, I'm not saying with surety, but I, I do believe, based on what we know from Revelation and other passages, that I don't believe these 24 elders are angelic beings because there is a difference, as he describes the elders, with angelic beings as well. Let's go on, verse number five. The next thing we see is the power of God demands our praise. Verse number five, it says, and out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thundering and voices. Anyone that's ever experienced any kind of storm, you just, you understand the power within that storm, the lightning, the thunder, the majesty that's there. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So now John sees flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder from the throne. Uh, Robert Mounts, a noted commentary, he says this, In Revelation, the symbols of thunder and lightning are always connected with a temple scene, and they always mark an event of unusual importance. John also sees these seven lamps, these seven torches, burning before the throne. These are the seven spirits of God. You see, the same spirit of God that convicts us of sin, that regenerates the hearts of unbelievers, is the same spirit that is mentioned here. It's the Holy Spirit that is ablaze forever before the throne of God. And what we discover about God is that he is perfect in his person, position, purity, and power. We move on. And I know I'm kind of going somewhat quickly tonight. The next thing we see as we enter this worship scene, verse number six, and before the throne, there was a sea of glass. Again, just imagine this. Typically, when you see a sea, when you see an ocean, when you see a body of water, it is not crystal clear, is it? It is raging. It is tumultuous. Uh, there have been times where I've, you know, you can see, you know, beneath the, the, the surface and, you know, it, it is majestic. It is beautiful. But a lot of times the sea is very choppy, right? I think this is a great picture that, you know, even though maybe on earth things are raging and, and storms are all around us in heaven, you know, God can calm everything. But what we see here is this, that praise, we should praise God because he is holy in nature. You see, holiness is one of the defining characteristics of God. John continues to unfold the throne room of heaven. What we see is both magnificent and strange, but the point is clear as the crystal sea that John sees. This pure crystal sea symbolizes God's holiness, and the mingled fire speaks of God's holy judgment. As we continue on, verse number six, and in the midst of the throne... And round about the throne were four beasts. 
full of eyes before and behind. Again, it's as you think about this, it just it can blow your mind as you're trying to picture this. And again, John is trying to give us a description as best he can of these uh, really angelic beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and the rest, and they rest not day and night. So they didn't sleep. But all day and all night, what did they do? They exclaimed, they cried out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. All they did day and night, they were around the throne describing God's worth. And it's just an amazing thing when you think about it. But as you look at these, these four living creatures, these four beasts, as our Bible says, they are symbolic of angels that are described in Ezekiel chapter 1, as well as Isaiah chapter 6. And these are really four clear pictures of the indescribable Christ. Because within each gospel, and what I'm talking about in the gospels, I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the synoptic gospels. Within each gospel, there's a picture of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to reference that quickly tonight. The lion, first of all, in your notes, the lion is a picture that God is perfect in his authority. God is perfect in his authority. You see, the lion represents strength and power and kingship. The lion is described in our vernacular as the king of the animal world, right? So this, this picture helps us understand that it is a picture that God has full and perfect authority. You see, in Matthew, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews. As we move on, the calf that is described here in verse number seven is a picture that God is perfect in his activity. And this calf or ox, as it's really described, this calf or ox is a picture that God is perfect in his activity. You see, the calf represents servitude. It exercises great power for the benefit of others. In Old Testament times, oftentimes an ox was substituted until the Lamb of God would come and be the ultimate sacrifice. And that was Jesus Christ. And the ox is one of the mightiest of domesticated animals. We move on this third picture. Or first of all, uh, in Mark, we see that Jesus is the servant of man. So Matthew, we see that he's the king of Jews. Mark, he's the servant of man. And then we see this third picture. We've seen uh, the, the lion has the face like a lion, has the face like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man. So the man is a picture that God is perfect in his majesty. Perfect in his majesty. You see, man is the pinnacle of creation. And only man has a face in this vision. Man is intelligent and spiritual. He is the apex of all that God has made. And this represents the humanity of Christ being fully God and yet fully man. And what we see in Luke, because again, all of these are pictures of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, uh, he is the servant of man. But in Luke, Jesus Christ is described as the son of man, as the son of man. And then this fourth picture, this fourth beast, this fourth living creature that we see. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And again, going back to the man, the only one that had a face that was given was the face of a man, that third one. But the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. I mean, just, just picture this. I mean, it, it kind of blows your mind when you try to think about all of these creatures that are there. But this eagle is a picture that God is perfect in his deity. God is perfect in his deity. You see, the eagle soars into the heavens, represents grace and power and, and deity. It is the mightiest among the birds and the swiftest of God's creatures. 
The eagle cannot be trained. Instead, by its power, it accomplishes its purpose. In John, Jesus is described as the Son of God who gives us eternal life. And we should be thankful for that. But as we see in all of these, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as in Revelation here, all of these creatures, listen, are strong like a lion. They serve like an ox. They see like a man, and they are swift like an eagle. They are representatives of Jesus Christ. Adrian Rogers calls these four living creatures God's cheerleaders because all day and all night, all they do is proclaim his worth around the throne, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And it's an amazing thing when you think about it. We continue on. Not only should we praise God that he is king over all things, not only should we praise God because he is holy in nature, but the final thing we see in verses 9 through 11 is this. Praise God because he created everything that exists. God created everything that exists. Look at verse number 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him. Even though they're seated around him, they still know who is in control, who is in charge. They fall down, they worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, what do they say? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So this is why we should praise God because he is the creator of everything that exists. Everyone bows down. I want to make an application for us very quickly tonight. You see, the crowns that were given to those 24, what did they do with those crowns? They gave them back, right? They threw them back at the feet of Jesus. So what's this application for us? You see, they are acknowledging that all they have, listen, all they have has been given to them by God. And I could easily talk for the next 20 minutes about that. Everything that they had was given to them by God, by the creator of all things. Nothing that they had was earned, but given. You see, a lot of times we get it wrong in our culture and in our minds. We think that everything we have is because we earned it, right? But still, everything we have has been given to us by our almighty creator. The talents we have, the gifts we have, the resources we have are not earned, but they're still given to us by the almighty God, by the almighty creator. And really, listen, this should bring about deep conviction for us. And it raises an important question. Am I withholding anything from God? Because as we see these 24 elders around the throne, and as they're throwing down their crowns and laying their crowns back at the feet of Jesus because everything that they had was given to them by the almighty God, the creator of everything. Am I, as a Christian, as a child of God, am I withholding anything from God? You see, this includes goods like money and time in our minds and our service and our hearts. And the reality is, listen, church, the reality is many of us are withholding things from God. We do not give back to God what he has already given us. 
But the Bible says one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day, every single one that is saved, that is a child of God, will give back to God. But what are we withholding from him in this earth? Chuck Swindoll, the famous pastor, he once said, we miss it when our focus becomes horizontal. Listen to me. We miss it when our focus becomes horizontal, riveted on people and things rather than vertical, centered on God and God alone. Let me say that again. He said, we miss it when our focus becomes horizontal. Basically, what he's saying is when our focus becomes so much on the things of this earth, instead of directing our focus back to the God, a vertical relationship with God, a vertical relationship with Jesus Christ, and realizing that everything we have should be centered around our relationship with him. You see, the worship of God as creator sets the stage for the subsequent chapters to come. And as we'll get to next week, as John, as he sees this scene unfolding, I'll, I'll just kind of you know, skip ahead just very briefly. Look at verse number one of chapter five. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look upon. And really this this terrified John. Look what it says in verse number four. And I wept much. I cried. Why? Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. But the angel, he calmed John and he said, hey, there is one worthy. And that one that is worthy is Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to get to next week. But I cannot wait to get to that because everything points back to Jesus. I can't remember who said it. I've, I've said this before and I've read it in one of my books or commentaries, but there is only one that gets to name us, and that's the one that created us. And the one that created us is Jesus Christ, and he is the one that gets to name us. We've been talking about identity in our church for several years now. He is the one that gets to tell us who we are. And this entire scene in chapter 4 is pushing us to chapter 5, where everyone, skip down to verse number 12 of chapter 5, and we'll get to this more in depth next week. But it says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are as in the sea and all that are in them heard I sing blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, amen. And the four and 20 elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever because all worth, all worship is to be described or ascribed to the only one that is worthy. And that is Jesus Christ. Adrian Rogers once said, if you woke up this morning, listen, and you are still here, that means God still has a plan for your life. If you woke up this morning, who woke up this morning? Anybody? All right, good. If you woke up this morning and you're still here presently, that means God still has a plan for your life. What is your plan that God has given you? Well, there's so many things, and we've been talking about this on Sunday mornings, but your plan that God has given you is to go out and tell other people about him. Because as we'll look at in chapter 6 and moving forward, you should wish none of what's going to happen on anyone. And it's not meant to scare us or terrify us. It's meant to point us back to our Redeemer. And one, be thankful that we are saved and escape all this tribulation. 
but also help us realize that there is a real hell. There is a real tribulation coming. And the events is the seals and the trumpets and, and those vials that are open and poured out upon the earth. No one should have to go through that. And that's why, church, we have to do a better job of telling people about Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer once said, Worship is the missing jewel in modern, evangel in modern evangelicalism. Can't say that word. You know, oftentimes in our churches, we too often neglect to worship the God of creation, truly worship God. And as I've said, it's more than just a song. It's more than that. You know, but I look on the faces, and I know people are a little tired, and I know people are struggling. I, I understand that. But we come into church, and really this should be a safe haven, right? This should be a safe haven that we just let out and worship God. You know, like, well, I'll just wait till I get to heaven. Why? <laughs> Why don't we start worshiping God here on this earth right now? You know, when we sing songs, I'm not trying to be a cheerleader, but man, lift up your voices to God. Thank God, praise God, worship God for who he is. You see, it's only when man acknowledges the creator and begins to use creation to God's glory that all of our problems will be solved. Here's the key truth in this lesson tonight. God alone is worthy of all worship, honor, and praise. Again, worship is declaring worth to the only one who truly deserves it all. And the only one who truly deserves all of our worth, all of our praise, is the only one who can open that seal, who can open that book, and that's Jesus Christ.